Man, am I excited to be here. I'm Leo. Thanks for that introduction, Jason. I have been praying for you ever since uh, we sent you out at Covenant Fellowship and been longing for the day when I get to witness with my eyes what I know by God's grace has been happening here. Uh, Jason is a, a dear friend, Joel and Ashley as well. Jason and, and Missy and my friendship started because we imposed ourselves upon him. He was at the pastor's college in Louisville and sort of dropped to know, hey, people can come and visit if they want. And then we showed up with a newborn and totally dominated his whole week during his hardest class at the PC. I think it was his only bad grade of the year. So once again, I'm showing up somewhat unannounced and taking over and making your life challenging. So Jason, I'm sorry about that. I'm really excited to preach to you today. We're going to be in Psalm 16. You can turn there now. Uh, Covenant Fellowship sends their greetings. The pastors there send their greetings. To, I, I send my own personal greetings to those who I've known for my entire life who are among you and to the new faces that I am looking out and seeing. Psalm 16 is a, is a really relevant word. It's a well-known passage. But I think in light of what everyone on earth has experienced over the last year, there's application that we know is relevant. No matter how well I know you or you know me, there's going to be truth about the confidence we can have in Jesus that we're going to see that's going to build our faith for whatever comes next. Let's read together in Psalm 16, starting in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. And because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. And therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, would you bless this preaching through my limitations and weaknesses? Would you build your church to glorify Christ? Amen. Well, this is talking about confidence, this passage. But there's little I find more funny than misplaced confidence. When I get done with a workout with my two boys, Tristan and Lincoln, Tristan sitting back there, they're eight and five. Oftentimes, they'll take off their shirts and they'll say, they'll flex their muscles and say, look at my buzz swole muscles and expect Missy and I to be absolutely overwhelmed and intimidated by the size of their eight and five-year-old muscles, which just hits me right in the giggle box and I end up laughing. One day, it will be true. But that 
humorous reality of a misplaced confidence has led to some of my favorite tweets as well. Here's a few of them. Lord, give me the confidence of those who comment on articles without reading the he- beyond the headline. Lord, give me the confidence of a man armed with Wikipedia trying to explain history to a historian. This is my fave. Lord, give me the confidence of one out of eight men who statistically think they could win a point in a game of tennis against Serena Williams. I don't care how good you are, not going to happen, guys. Now, as funny as that is, there are some who would laugh at Christians' confidence. I still remember in college the scorning laughter of people who saw me singing, saw me confident, and said, aren't they just so silly, believing in this invisible God? But in this passage, God is telling us, friends, that despite horrible, desperate circumstances, he's giving us confidence that produces joy in our lives. Not laughable, misplaced confidence, wishful thinking, but real, stake your life on it, dependable confidence. And I wonder, for you here in the Newark area, how has your confidence in God been shaken by the pandemic, the quarantine, the national turmoil of this past year. The whole world has shaken this last year. And you may have really lost relational security. Someone in your family got sick. Political security. You may have lost financial security and the loss of a job. I know for myself and being a young pastor I've felt the struggles of trying to lead people through this season in new ways this year. So God's addressing all of us today through this passage. He's asking us, how has your confidence been affected by the shaking of this last year? And what he's calling us to is unshakable confidence. God in this passage is calling us to an unshakable confidence in him alone. But when our faith is shaken, And when we feel kind of like our footing's been lost as Christians, we start looking elsewhere for security. We start getting really, really into politics because we need a political kingdom right now to trust in. We start giving in to pleasures that we know we should not because we need something right now that we can feel that we can trust in. But God's informing us today that if we do that, if we hedge our bets with God, If we put our trust a little here, a little there, and keep a little in God, we're going to strip ourselves of joy and just get rid of whatever security that we are feeling in that moment. This is a song of confident faith. It's why we all love it so much, for those of you who have read it before. But did you notice how it started? He said, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge started with a desperate cry for deliverance. And then later he's talking about Sheol, this place of the dead. So how is David so confident when he's thinking about these harsh and starking realities? Well, let's examine that together by looking at the source, the strength, and the result of our confidence. Those will be our points for today. First, the source of our confidence. We'll look in verse 2. Read again with me. Because if you're like me, you forget, like, what happened two seconds ago. I say to the Lord, that's Yahweh, the name of Israel's God. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, or master, or king. I have no good apart from you. 
As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. Lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So what did those verses tell us is the source of our confidence? Over and over and over again, we're hearing God alone is the place of confidence for the Christian. It's calling us to a going all in with Jesus. In verse 2, he starts out by saying that Yahweh is his Lord. He declares God as his king. He gives all rights and jurisdiction over what his decisions are in his life to God. And he refuses to bow his knee to any king that might afflict him, challenge him, or try to get him to submit to him. He bows his knee to Yahweh alone. Then he goes on to declare that his good, what's good in his life, is actually not just God, what God said is, says is good. It actually defines his goodness. If there's a trial, if there's a struggle in his life, and it comes from the hands of God, it is good to him. He says, I have no good apart from you, unequivocally. And then from verse 2 to verse 3, David's delight in his king spills over in love for the king's people. He says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And then quickly the, 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 the key changes to a minor key. And we hear him talk about a contrast with the wicked. He delights in the excellence of the God, godliness and the godliness of the saints in the land. But the wicked who run after other idols, far from delighting them, David, he says that he won't even take their names on his mouth. That's some serious shade, right? He is communicating very strongly his love for God's people and his opposition towards those who hate God. And here's a word for us, Redeemer Fellowship. Our delight in Jesus should cause and inspire a delight of his people in this church and all throughout the world who call on his name. These are the people in the land that David loves. He doesn't just love anybody in this area. It's the people that are God's chosen people that he has called out of Egypt and redeemed and placed within his covenant blessing. And today, who are the people in the land? Not a physical land, but it's the people who are in Christ, the people who Jesus has brought out of our sin and redeemed us from that curse and made us his own. We are called to delight in all the brothers and sisters in Christ, not because they're like us, not because they're funny or cool or just not annoying. Frankly, they're probably gonna bother you at a different time. If I'm your friend, I will. But because, why do we delight in them? Because Christ delights in them. They, these are the blood-bought people that the Father loves with the same love that he loves Jesus. And we are to delight in these people. They, this psalm particularly says, not just in the people themselves, but in their excellence. Now, if you're older like me, I'm not really that old, but this kind of fits my demographic, Excellent is like when I see the word excellent, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure comes into my mind and I can't even read that. This is not that. This is talking about the godliness of people. 
This is when you see someone running hard after Christ, trusting him in a trial, just pointing out something that they're encouraging someone, that kind of excellence coming out of their life. Now, given what we know about David, this is a crazy charitable description of the saints in the land. People try to kill him, right? His own sons totally abandoned him. The kingdom was ripped out of his hands by some of his most trusted counselors. And yet he says, the saints in the land in whom is all my delight. This type of delighting requires eyes that are searching for grace. Eyes that are on the patrol to see where is God's grace shining out in those who Christ has saved. Recently I had this happen in my own life. Henry Cooper, one of my friends at Covenant Fellowship Church, he took the time to send a seven minute video of specific encouragements for all of his elders. And then he said, you guys are accountable before God for me, so I'm praying for you, and I gladly submit to you. I was like, what in the world just happened? What the effect of that was in my life was it not only showed me that God's grace was active in this weak and frail person, but it also bound me to Henry in substantial ways. That's the kind of encouragement that God is calling you to, friends. Let me ask you, are you known as a grace-finding, delighting friend? Or are you known as a fault-finding friend? God is calling us to seek the grace that he's working into his people and rejoice in it. And on the flip side, do you envy the ungodly? We're all tempted to at times. You see someone prospering, maybe doing it for the wrong reasons, in the wrong ways, but materially they have nicer cars, nicer houses, and it seems like they're prospering. This passage tells us there is one end to their prosperity. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply, right? They will end in sorrow. God is calling us not to flirt with that because the world, it's an intoxicating flirt, but it's a disastrous marriage. There will be pleasure for a moment. There will be a rush, but it will be replaced with self-loathing and emptiness, the delight and joy that we see in this passage comes from delighting in the saints, in the land, and in their king, first and foremost. Now, picking back up on the theme from verse 3, we read one of those most beautiful statements of contentment in the whole Old Testament in verse 5. How many of you guys love verse 5? That's like a go-to verse for you. Nobody but me in here, apparently. Well, hopefully after today, it will be one of yours too. This is what it says in verse 5, precious verse. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And listen to this. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, he's talking about lines there because when Israel landed in the promised land, they divided it up and gave specific inheritances to different tribes. But here, is he talking about a physical land or earthly wealth? No. Listen to who he's describing. The beautiful inheritance is actually God himself. The Lord is my chosen portion. The lines have fallen for me so that I have Christ. I have God as my beautiful inheritance. So even though David right here started out in a place where he is saying, deliver me, God. I'm in desperate circumstances. He can look out in that circumstance and say, but I've got God. And so I am beautifully rich. 
I have a glorious inheritance. And that is true no matter what your week was like for every single one of you who have bowed your knee to Yahweh and trusted in Christ alone. Friends, there's a secret to contentment, to the confidence that we long for as Christians. Don't you want to be a courageous Christian? Don't you want to just trust Jesus? It comes from verse 8. Follow a little bit further down. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Where does this kind of confidence, this kind of, wow, my inheritance is beautiful come from? It comes from setting Christ before you daily, communing with him, meditating on the cross, and pursuing Christ in the morning, midday, and evening. Faith in the morning is not enough for midday, is it? We need to constantly set the Lord before us. And what will rise out of our hearts is this cherishing of the beautiful inheritance that we have of God. And friends, this is a gift. You simply can't just make this happen, right? But when we treasure Christ, we put him in front of our eyes, we remember the cross, the floodgates of heaven open and grace rains down on our lives. No matter how much we've struggled, God is a God who is eager to forgive, a God who's gentle and lowly and delights in bestowing mercy upon his people. This confidence will come as we pursue God because he's faithful. Confidence and contentment are the fruit of the laser vision of the saints on our unstoppable God. Amen? And that source is not self-confidence, being a get-it-done kind of person or just being strong. This confidence is God-confidence. It's remembering that he's strong. He gets it done. Because God is the source of our confidence, we can emerge from a pandemic and look to a summer with faith and with courage. Let's look at our second point now. The source is God. How strong is this confidence? Let's look in verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, and because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy. So he starts in verse seven and eight describing a personal and intimate strength of confidence he's received from God. In verse seven, he describes how God went before him and gave him counsel And then goes on to say that his heart in in the night, his heart instructed him. That's a way of talking about God actively building him up, sustaining him, and helping him while he slept. Isn't that crazy? I was a chemistry teacher for 10 years. I had a lot of kids sleeping in my class. Never once did I succeed in imparting anything of value to them besides a good night's sleep. But God is so great. And his strength is so strong that he can help us when we're not even aware of it. Isn't that amazing? And then in verse 8, David talks about going on a journey and how God would go before him and help him when he was feeling alone. He holds his right hand, he says. That's an image of battle. As he fought all day long back in the day and his arm grew weary, who was it who held up his right hand? And the strength that allowed him to conquer, it was God. Finally, 
we hear his voice rise in triumph in verse 8 to declare in sort of a way like gladiator. They're like, are you not entertained, right? Sort of like that. He says, I shall not be shaken. It's this complete reversal from verse 1. What did he say? He said, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And now he's saying, I am safe. I shall not be shaken. And how did he get here? Remember verse 8. By setting the Lord always before him and experiencing his help in the day, in the night, in the journey, and in the battle. Now, the remaining verses contain two incredible statements of joy that sandwich the most powerful statement about the strength of our confidence. Let's read that together. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. How strong is the confidence that we have in Christ, friends? Stronger than death. David believed that even in death, he could not be kept from the helping hand of God. Now, David did die, but his statement isn't false. Right now, we know that he is with Christ, receiving his help and abiding with him experiencing the faithfulness of God even now. But friends, we have it better than David. We can know with granite certainty that we won't be shaken or abandoned, even in death. How? Not because we're good people. I'm not confident for you, church, because you're just the best thing in town. But because another would come a thousand years later, and he would be shaken, and he would be forsaken. His name is Jesus, and he lived in perfection as the truly holy one, never once for a moment even contemplating a thing that was sinful, always responding to temptation in a way that was perfect. And he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his cry, unlike David's and unlike ours, was met with silence. And now we can know, though, because he was met with silence, with even greater certainty than David could, now that we know what Christ has done, that our cries will never be met with silence, that we will never be abandoned to Sheol, that he hears your cries for deliverance from sin and your cries in the midst of affliction and trial that doesn't seem like it's ever going to end. He will not abandon you, friends, even in death. You see, when Jesus died, he absorbed the full wrath of God, the wrath that we deserve. He took the overwhelming accumulation of guilt. We don't even know what that means. You have felt guilty, but we've never felt the guilt of everything all at once. And ever, all the sins we've never even known we've committed all at once. And he bore that for all those who would trust in him in our place. 
You see, verse 10 in Psalm 16 is not ultimately about David. He declares, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. But then in the New Testament, Peter at Pentecost and Paul in city in Antioch declared that this verse in particular prophesied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, David's in the grave, but there is one who could not remain in the grave. And though Jesus entered into our death and he experienced the fullness of our hell, he did not remain in that grave. He rose from the dead on the third day, and in his resurrection, here's what happened. The faithfulness of God was declared. Jesus was vindicated as the Holy One who would never see corruption, and all those promises long ago that, that, that God had given us through the many that had gone before were proved to be true, and God's faithfulness was declared. Jesus would not see eternal corruption, and the grave could not hold him down. It didn't have a chance. This is the strength of your confidence today, as strong as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you feel hopeless? Do you feel like you're up against something that is just way too great from your, for your own strength? You could never raise yourself. In Christ, you have that strength to overcome something far greater than whatever your battle's gonna be this afternoon or tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, we can know without a doubt that we are not forsaken, we are not shaken, because Christ died and rose again. And now the resurrection of Jesus is our proof that God will never abandon us in life or death. Now our future is not death, and so you know what we can do? We can live courageously. We can live like we're not afraid to die. We can go on missions to the furthest reaches of the globe. We can take a job that we're a little bit scared of. We can be honest about our faith with our neighbors. We can even come to Christ when our entire family hates Christ. Because we know we have a strength of our confidence that can never be crushed, even by death itself. Amen? Amen. In specific, I, I just really, as I was prepping, I was thinking about those of you who are struggling with anxiety. And, you know, when someone gets up and says, I just have a sense someone's struggling with anxiety, you're like, that's the easiest prophetic word of all time. We're all struggling with that right now. But my friend in particular, she told me about this time where she was struggling with acute anxiety. She couldn't sleep for like three days straight. Um, and she was just consumed with what ifs. What ifs? She was playing out everything. And she couldn't fall asleep at night. And you know what actually helped her? Thinking about the worst possible scenario. She actually was ministered to by remembering that even death meant resurrection. Now check this out. That's the worst counsel ever for somebody who goes into a counseling room and they say, just think about the worst possible thing as much as possible. In fact, if you have a subscription to someone who says that, probably cancel it right away. But what was it about that that helped her? She drifted off to sleep because she realized that when God is your confidence, it really does secure your, you in your worst moments. Not that she was going to live there, always thinking about there, about that scenario, but she could touch it, proclaim the resurrection of Christ over it, and emerge from that with peace. Friends who are struggling with, you would say, constant anxiety, you need to know Christ is not fed up with you. He's not disappointed. 
He loves you. He weeps for you. And he has strength for you to help. I wonder if your anxiety stems from trying to avoid your fear. Rather than avoid your fears, let's recall the strength that is present even in our fears. So when your heart's racing, you can't catch your breath, you can't fall asleep, that's an opportunity to declare the precious truths of Psalm 16 over your thoughts. Because God is your strength. You can have freedom even as you battle, even as you feel the symptoms of anxiety to declare, I shall not be shaken in the face of that struggle. May God do that. Let's move to our last point, which will be brief. The result of our confidence. So what's the effect that all this truth should have on us? What kind of people should we be? Well, this passage is very clear. It should make us the happiest people on earth. Way happier than people that live at Disney World. Not just for the sanguine among us, the just bubbly people. Joy for every Enneagram number, whatever that is. Every type of personality should be able to be a happy, courageous person because of what Jesus has done. I want to show you this uh, by an illustration of, uh, from my own um, fascination with sports. Um, big Phillies fan. Any other Phillies fans here? Yeah. All right, good. You're not too far away from Philly, right? Uh, Roy Halladay was like one of my favorite pitchers ever, and he pitched an unforgettable game on May 29th of 2010. Uh, it was perfect game, no hits, no errors, no walks, and this was the call on the radio that day. Steps back up to the mound. I kind of sound like a 1940s guy when I do this, so sorry. Steps back up to the mound, tucks the baseball in his right hand, now into his glove, holds in the front of his letters, nods, yes, the wind, the one two pitch, swing, and a ground ball left side. Castro's got it, spins, throws, he got him! A perfect game for Roy Halladay. 27 up and 27 down. Halladay's mobbed to the mound as the Phillies celebrate perfection tonight in Miami. I read that, and it, like, it brings a smile to my lips. It was such a great moment. It was like the, kind of like the peak moment of Halliday's career. And you'd think for him it would be the happiest moment of his life, right? But after pitching the perfect game and completing his normal 40-minute after-game workout uh, routine, he was a total beast, he said this, the journey is always better than the destination. You see, for him, becoming one of the greatest pitchers in the game wasn't ultimately fulfilling in and of itself. He did find a sort of happiness in that perfect game. But he found more happiness in the grind, the process of becoming great. But even that would not last. Sadly, only seven years after this apex moment, perfect game, Halliday's life ended when he crashed in his personal aircraft. And after the wreckage was analyzed, it appeared that he had taken his own life intentionally. It was a horrible tragedy, and I don't want to minimize the pain that many felt and are feeling today. My, I, I grieved. The whole city of Philadelphia grieved. But Halliday's life is an important illustration for us about the emptiness of the world's offer of happiness. Even the greatest of earthly joys will come to an end. After the rush, the moment, the fans go home, and you're left with, did this really matter? And in our passage, what we see is an entirely different level and order 
of happiness for every Christian, not just for the pastors, for everyone. This is what he says in verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. That strength of security produces a whole body gladness in us. No matter what your denominational background or preference, it makes you want to dance. It makes you want to crash some cymbals. It makes you want to use your whole being to praise God in joy. And notice that the gladness is parallel with rejoicing there. This isn't a, a, a calm, collected, joyful posture where we just don't, aren't affected by the trials of this world and we're just sort of like grown-up Christians. This is like a God is awesome kind of joy that God is calling us to, to be childlike, to not care what anyone thinks about you, and to just let the bubbling joy and hope of the gospel take control of all that you are. Here's a word for everyone who's feeling joyless this morning. We've all been there, haven't we? We ebb and flow. The world tries to pull us down. When we remember these truths, God brings us back up to the place of joy and happiness that lasts. Happiness is possible for you. If we set the Lord before us and we encounter his faithfulness and we remember the gospel and the resurrection, we will return to the joy of our salvation. This is a happiness that's realistic. It grieves. It laments. It's like Jesus willing to absolutely spend himself with tears so that people said he really loved Lazarus. But it rejoices even as it's sorrowful. It continually rises to a place where people are aware that you've got it good, even though perhaps materially you have nothing. And it doesn't ignore the holiday stories of the world or our own struggles, but it finds a joy that rises above life and goes all the way to eternal life. Verse 11 says, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence, how, what kind of joy? There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures for a bit? No, forevermore. Barnabas Piper wrote about these, this last verse and he said, this verse moves us from our present life to our eternal life with God. And just look at the words David uses. Joy, pleasures, fullness, forever. These words are jackhammers of happiness, shattering our misconceptions and breaking down the false barriers we have put around the truth that God wants us to be happy. He has given us all that we need to find happiness himself. And not just sparse or fleeting happiness. In his presence is joy without lack or flaw, fullness of joy. Some of us here need to have misconceptions about God shattered this morning. That we think that God's kind of curmudgeonly and stodgy and he doesn't really want us to be happy. He'll save us but he doesn't really want us to just be bubbly people. God is the happiest being. He is the God of all happiness. Now, he does not promise you to be wealthy. He does not promise you to be healthy. Sometimes he brings that into our life. Sometimes he heals us. But you know what he promises? If you set your, the Lord before you daily, you will rejoice with gladness in your being. He wants you to be happy despite the circumstances. Amen? 
A few months ago, I read um, Gallup's 2020 mental health poll. Very depressing. Don't read it. I don't know why I did it. I'm glad that I did, though, because even though the statistics were scary, there was one group of people that reported a more positive mental health in 2020 across all race and age demographics. Those who weekly went to church. The only ones. I'm not saying there's a magical thing that happens when you walk through the doors, but I am saying you have a faithful God that when you daily commune with him, seek him, and gather with those who love him and delight in the saints in the land and declare that you shall not be shaken by his grace, you will experience a happiness and joy to rise above whatever you're facing today. And as things open back up this summer, we need, friends, whether my church or this church, to commit to, to weekly attendance to church, daily communion with God and real community centered around God. That's where that confidence and happiness we want flows from. So friends of Redeemer Fellowship, let's place our confidence in God, who is our only good. And let's claim him as our only portion. And let's call him our beautiful inheritance and experience together the joy now that will give way in eternity to joy supreme.